Good Friday service. You can turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, I'm going to read verse 20 through 25. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 20. You know, let me back it up to verse 16. So this is page 1,369 in the church Bible. So the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium. And they called together the whole Roman cohort and they dressed him up in purple. And after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to greet him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they kept beating him in the head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling. They were bowing down before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they pressed into service a passerby coming from the countryside Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And divided his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide who should take what. Now it was the third hour they crucified him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come before these sober words as we see a picture of our Savior our champion, the only man who perfectly obeyed you, the only one who loved his neighbor as himself, the only one who loved the Lord God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and yet treated with such contempt, shame, dishonor. I pray that you would help us to glean from this passage that which you intend for us to understand and to respond with repentance and faith. In Jesus' name, amen. At one point in Julius Caesar's political career, his approval ratings were so low that he thought it fit for him to leave Rome. And as he left, he sailed 
for the Aegean island of Rhodes. And en route, his ship was attacked by pirates. Caesar was kidnapped. The pirates demanded a ransom of approximately 1,440 pounds of silver. Julius Caesar laughed. He said, you should ask for more. So they asked for double that. Caesar sent his staff away to arrange the payment. And Caesar spent almost 40 days with his captors, jokingly telling the pirates on several occasions that someday he would crucify them to a man. The pirates laughed back. But it was Julius Caesar who had the last laugh because after the payments were made and Caesar was freed, he gathered a fleet of ships and pursued these pirates who took him captive and he ensured, indeed, that all of them were crucified to a man. That little anecdote reminds us that crucifixion was a common form of, crucifixion, of, of execution in the ancient world. It was a regular way in which governments would put people to death. And it's what we see here in our passage this evening. The Gospel of Mark really in many ways is an enormous chunk of it. I think one third of the Gospel of Mark is the last week in Jesus' life, sometimes called the Passion Week. Passion meaning death, the death week of Jesus. And so clearly the focus of the Gospel of Mark is upon the death of Jesus. In fact, throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is repeatedly telling his disciples, this is where I'm headed. I'm headed for death. I'm headed for crucifixion. It is the theme of the Gospel of Mark. Probably if, you were to, if I were to guess what the theme verse of the Gospel of Mark is, it's Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Clearly alluding to Isaiah 52 and 53 that this Jesus is that promised suffering servant. And so here is, in a very real sense, the, the, the climax of the gospel of Mark. This is what it's been heading to. And, and just to remind you of those verses where Jesus said he was going to the cross. Mark 8.31, Jesus, it says, and he began to teach them saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days to rise again. <clears throat> just in case the disciples didn't get it after the first lecture. In chapter 9, in verse 31, it says, For he, that is Jesus, was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. And just in case they didn't get lecture number 2, 
Again, in chapter 10, in verse 33 and 34, it says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and spit on him, and scourge him, and kill him, and three days later, he will rise again. Now, now you hear those three different lectures of Jesus, and, 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 and they were ongoing teachings that Jesus was giving, and, and it may cause us to wonder, why would Jesus have to teach it over and over? Well, we know as we read the Gospels, the disciples weren't always the brightest bulbs in the bunch, but also the reality, the common thinking in their minds was that Messiah is a political freedom fighter. Messiah will be one who will take off the yoke of Roman authority and finally the Jews will be free. And so Jesus had to kind of kick against that kind of thinking and teach his disciples over and over, no, this is an upside down kingdom. This is not like the kingdoms of men. This king will ascend a Roman cross as his throne. This king came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. Now, at this point in the story, Jesus has already gone through the trial before the religious uh, leader Annas and then Caiaphas and the whole council. Then Jesus is handed over to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate who finds nothing to charge Jesus with. And according to the Gospel of Luke, he's then sent over to Herod and then finally comes back now to Pilate. And the crowd has recently been chanting, demanding the crucifixion of Jesus, chanting, crucify him, crucify him. Even though no charges against him are sticking, Pontius Pilate gives in to the demands of the crowd and Jesus goes the way, the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. In verse 20, it says, After they mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. Jesus was led out. Led out of what? He was let out of the praetorium? No. He was led out of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem. Now, hold that thought. We'll come back to it later. Verse 21, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Now, often when we see people come up in the gospel accounts who are actually named, that's probably a good indication that the audience knew who Mark was talking about. So probably 
this Simon of Cyrene actually winds up becoming a follower of Jesus. We, there's good hints of that at the end of the book of Romans where Paul greets Simon's son. But here, this Simon is pressed into service. Now, the cross that Jesus was carrying, if it was um, both beams of the cross, it would have been 200 pounds. If it was just one of the beams, it would have been 100 pounds. Either way, it it was clear that Jesus was so uh, injured from the flogging that he had just endured, the whipping with pieces of metal on the ends of the whip. His back would have been filleted and he would have been bleeding tremendously already that he was physically unable to carry whether it was 100 pounds or 200 pounds so that Simon of Cyrene had to help him. Verse 22. They brought him to the place Golgotha which is translated place of a skull. The place Golgotha. Even, it even sounds creepy, right? Golgotha. It's translated here. Mark helps us out. It's called the place of the skull. Why was it called the place of a skull? Some suggest that there was a bunch of skulls lying around from Roman executions, but that's unlikely because that would have been so offensive to the Jewish people. They would have not allowed human remains to lie around. More than likely, evidently, this was a a place where it, it was a kind of a hill that looked like a skull when you saw it from a distance. We can't be sure about that, but it's a good guess. Verse 23, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They give him this wine mixed with myrrh. Sometimes it's suggested that this was the pious women of Jerusalem who give Jesus the wine and the myrrh. But this is not what the text says. The nearest antecedent today is found in verse 22, which refers back previously to verse 21, which is a reference to the Roman soldiers. It's the Roman soldiers who are giving or offering to Jesus this wine mixed with myrrh. Now, this was a kind of concoction where the myrrh mixed with the the wine had a kind of narcotic effect. A narcotic effect that would uh, sedate, dull some of the pain. And it obviously begs the question, why would they do this? I mean, they didn't up until this point exactly seem interesting in alleviating anybody's pain, right? Their job was to inflict pain. Their job was to torture. Their job was to execute. And so why would they do such a thing? Hold that thought as well. And then verse 24. And they crucified him. Four simple words in our English text. Three words in the Greek text. 
Mark doesn't give any details, right? It just says, and they crucified him. Why doesn't Mark give any details of Roman execution? Because the readers already knew. They already witnessed many Roman executions by way of crucifixion. So for us in the year 2023, we have to kind of try to unpack what was that like? What, it, what did it mean? These four words and they crucified him. What would this have entailed? Well, a little bit of history about crucifixion. It originated with the Persians where a deity named Ormazd was believed to be a, a kind of earth god where the, the, the earth was considered sacred. And so for a dying, for, for a, a dead body or a dying body to touch the earth would be to desecrate the earth. And so they would execute suspending a person above the earth. This was so as not to defile the earth. The practice was picked up by the Carthaginians and then by the Greeks and especially by the Romans whose extensive use of it caused the Romans themselves to be identified with this form of execution. They were the ones who, if you will, popularized it. It's estimated that during Jesus' lifetime, his some 33 and a half years, the Romans executed roughly 30,000 people by way of crucifixion. So it would have been a regular occurrence. You're walking along the road and you see somebody dying an agonizing, long, drawn-out death hanging there on a Roman cross. So this crucifixion of only three men outside of Jerusalem would have been virtually insignificant in the eyes of most Romans. In 1968, the remains of a crucified man nailed to a cross were discovered. And as they excavated these remains, it was evident that the feet had been nailed together at the heels which would have made it difficult for a crucified person to bear weight and breathe while crucified. Those crucified would either be nailed or tied to the cross. The text indicates nailing, as do, of course, the appearances of Jesus when he says to Thomas, look at my hands and look at my side, that Jesus indeed was nailed to the cross. So Jesus would have been placed on the cross as it lay flat on the ground. His feet would be nailed to the upright beam. His arms would be stretched horizontal and nailed through the wrists. Some of the translations will say hands, but it would have been through the wrists right between the ulnar and the radial bone. Because if 
unlike as you see in a lot of Roman Catholic tradition, for instance, with the stigmata, you know, the, the nail prints are on the palms, but the palms couldn't hold anything. Your, your hand would just come down right through there. And so the, the nailing was, was right below the hand between the two bones and the wrists. And by the way, there is a nerve that runs right through there which wouldn't exactly have felt so good with those nails driven through. In fact, we even have an English word that came from the Latin to highlight the intensity of the pain of crucifixion. Do you ever hear the word excruciating? It means from the cross. Excruciating pain. The, the highest degree of pain. Dr. Truman Davis gives an additional description of crucifixion. He says, at this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, nodding them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps come the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercoastal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled well. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and the bloodstream and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and to bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins. A deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. And now it is almost over. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood to the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to grasp a small gulp of air death is impending this is just something of the physical descriptions of what Jesus endured on that Roman cross quite gruesome quite cruel in fact I was reading in our family Bible time this past week the author had had uh, said, what, what if you saw a puppy getting kicked over and over and over and over? Wouldn't your heart just go out to that animal that's being beaten? Our hearts would indeed. If we have any compassion and yet this in a far worse manner is what our Lord endured. And yet wonder wonders as awful 
as the physical sufferings were, they were pale in comparison to the spiritual realities that he was undergoing as in those three hours hanging on the cross, he was bearing in his body the full throttle of hell for every sinner who would ever believe. So what do we learn from this text? First, I want to draw, draw our attention to behold the shameful Savior. The shameful Savior. Notice in verse 20, they had mocked him. They took the purple robe off him, put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They led him out. Now for us, this might seem like a mere historical detail, which it is a historical detail. But it's not merely a historical detail because it's capturing a theme that is seen from Genesis to Revelation. They brought Jesus outside the city, outside the community, outside the capital. It's a theme that we see from the earliest pages of the Bible. Because remember, it was after Adam and Eve had rebelled against their creator that in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 23, it says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way back to the tree of life. Adam and Eve, after they had eaten, they realized their nakedness and were shamefully driven out of the garden. This is how the design of the camp of Israel was. Remember the, the different, you know, when you're reading through the, the book of Joshua and they finally get into the land, you know, there, there's all this description of the different tribes. This tribe was over here and, you know, you're just like, can I just keep skipping over this part? But those sections are important because they're highlighting where each of the tribes was and at the center in the middle of the tribes existed the tabernacle of Yahweh which if you followed our study in the book of Leviticus was a kind of replica of Eden. And then to go outside of the promised land was to be outside the camp. Was to be in a place of shame because the place of promised blessing was inside the land. Inside, not outside. We see the same pattern as with the different sacrifices, in particular the sin offering sacrifice where some of it was offered unto Yahweh, some of it was given to the priest, and then there was a, a remaining remnant uh, of the refuse that was to, to be taken outside of the camp. Exodus 29, 14 says, but the flesh of the bull and its hide and its refuse 
you shall burn with fire outside the camp. We saw on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Remember where, where there was the sprinkling of the blood, almost like washing the tabernacle all the way east outside the tabernacle. And then when that priest came out and that, that, that scapegoat, the hands were laid on the head of that scapegoat and it was driven out outside the camp into the desert place of shame outside the covenant people we see it also even with the stonings when there was calls for public execution through stoning we'll see this lord willing in several weeks in leviticus 24:14 it says bring the one who is cursed outside the camp and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him and then the lepers the lepers uh, with their skin disease In Leviticus 13.45 it says, As for the leopard who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, and the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and she shall cover his mustache and call out, Unclean! Unclean! And then he had to go outside the camp. Verse 46 says, he shall make, remain unclean all his days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His place of habitation shall be outside the camp. Outside the camp. And so it's no wonder when we come to the New Testament, the author of Hebrews has this to say about Jesus, commenting, I believe, on Mark chapter 15. And Hebrews 13, 11 through 14 says, For the bodies of the animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the camp. The camp. Jesus suffered outside the camp. This was a picture of him bearing the shame that is not his own shame that he earned, but our shame. Our shame because of our sins and our rebellions. You see, it's our Sin that is shameful. We live in a day and age that wants to do away with even the concept of shame. Somebody's feelings might be hurt. Well, some of our feelings should be hurt. We live in a world that wants to celebrate rebellion and sin. 
But there's that nagging sense that this is a shameful thing. And that, I believe, is one of the reasons why the world around us wants to shout down any thoughts of certain activities being sin because they might actually realize it is shameful. But the reality is, is all sin is shameful. I mean, imagine if We had ring cam footage of all your sins from this past week and we posted them on the screen. You would just kind of quietly walk out the back ashamed, right? Jesus is led outside the city to be crucified bearing the shame so that we could be accepted before God so that we could have our shame washed away. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13 says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ, you who, have, who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were far off. You were outside the camp. You were ashamed. But because Jesus went outside the camp, he bore your shame. Colossians 1.21 says, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. To present you holy and blameless beyond reproach. Not because you are that in and of yourself, but because you have the perfect spotless record of Christ. This is a theme that runs, as I said, even to the end of the book. In Revelation 22... Verse 14 and 15, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. And then John records, Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. You see, you really have two options. Either you bear your own shame outside the city gates, or Jesus bears it for you. And also, the author of Hebrews, I quoted it earlier, he doesn't stop there, but he says in Hebrews 13, 12, it says, therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate, so let us go out 
Let us go out to him outside the camp bearing the reproach. For there we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. The way the author of Hebrews applies this, it says, Jesus went outside the city. He bore your shame. Therefore, you can go outside and bear reproach. What what is meant by that is that because you are accepted before God, you don't have to worry about being accepted by the world. That you can go outside and experience the reproach and the shame of this world that they try to heap upon you. Because you are accepted before the one being in the universe who actually matters, the Almighty God. So let us behold our shameful Savior, but secondly, behold your cursed Savior. Your cursed Savior. Have you ever thought to wonder why was Jesus crucified? There's a handful of different ways in which you could answer that question. You might say, well, this fulfilled a prophecy laid out in Psalm 22, which Jesus himself quotes from the cross. It begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And part of that psalm written, uh, you know, a thousand years before Jesus was even born and Many years even before they had this form of execution of crucifixion, it says that his hands and his feet would be pierced. That's one way to answer the question, why was Jesus crucified? But also, it fits another biblical theological theme that runs through the Scripture. Namely, the Apostle Paul picks up on this theme in Galatians chapter 3 when he says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus wasn't beheaded, he wasn't stoned, he was hung on a tree. Being hung on a tree. According to Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, it says, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, he is to be put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So Moses wrote way back in Deuteronomy chapter 21, the person who is executed for their crimes, they are hung on a tree. And this was a, a, a way of God saying justice has been served and they are publicly demonstrated as cursed of God. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, the Apostle Paul cites this Deuteronomy 21 passage and says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, here he quotes Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 
And so Jesus being hung, Jesus being executed in this manner was God's way of saying, my son is cursed. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word cursed. You might think of some Harry Potter hex or if you're old like me, I dream of genie or something like that. It sounds very magical. But cursed in the Bible is, is really the divine judgment. It's the opposite of blessed. Blessed is the divine favor. Cursed is the divine punishment. And, and this, again, goes all the way back to to the Torah in Deuteronomy 27 verse 15 it says cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image an abomination to the Lord the work of the hands of the craftsman and sets it up in secret and all the people shall answer and say amen cursed is he who dishonors his father or mother and all the people shall say Amen. Normally we amen the happy stuff. They were told to amen the stuff that brought divine judgment. Verse 17, cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark. And all the people shall say, amen. Verse 18, cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road. And all the people shall say, amen. Cursed is he who distorts justice due an alien, an orphan, and a widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Then the curse is pronounced on all kinds of sexual immorality. Then in verse 24, it says, Cursed is he who strikes his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say, Amen. Verse 25, Cursed is he who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent person, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say amen. So in verse 26, it just sums it all up. If you don't do everything that God says, you are cursed. And all God's people said, amen. That's not a happy sermon. (laughs) Because the reality is, is that even when we hear this ancient list of commands, we find ourselves cursed under the divine judgment. Young people, how often are you supposed to obey God? A, sometimes. B, all the time. See none of the above. Circle B. All the time. How often are you supposed to obey and respect your parents? A, some of the time. B, all the time. It's B. All the time. But it's not just for young people, is it? for all of us how often are we supposed to obey God all the time 
What are the consequences for not obeying God? The divine curse. And this is why, my dear friends, Good Friday is good. Because this Jesus, who perfectly obeyed, who perfectly loved, who perfectly practiced righteousness his entire life, who did not deserve the divine cursing, he hung upon that Roman cross and again the Apostle Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He took the curse. He took the judgment. Matthew Henry wrote, it was a cursed death. Thus it was branded by the Jewish law that he that is hanged is accursed of God, is under the particular mark of God's displeasure. It was the death that Saul's sons were put to when the guilt of their father's bloody house was to be expiated. Haman and his sons were hanged. Do we not read any of the prophets of the Old Testament that were hanged? But now Christ has submitted to be hanged upon a tree. The reproach and curse of that kind of death are quite rolled away so that it ought to be any hindrance to the comfort of those that die either innocently or penitently, nor any diminution from, but rather in addition to the glory of those who die martyrs for Christ to be as he was hanged upon a tree. So my friends, do you realize that in and of yourself, the divine curse hangs over you. And my friend, it's not until you realize and come to an acknowledgement that you deserve the divine curse, you deserve God's eternal and unending judgment outside the camp in an eternal and unending hell. It's not until you realize that that you will begin to lay hold of that one who took the curse on behalf of sinners. Christian, have you grown indifferent to Christ bearing your curse? Has your heart grown cold to the Savior? Charles Spurgeon tells the story of a man who's about to be hanged He is at the gallows. There's crowds of people yelling and laughing. In the roughness of the rope, he feels around his neck as he's waiting for the floor to be dropped out. And just before the noose is about to tighten around his neck and bring him to a swift death, he gets word that he's been pardoned.
Spurgeon then explains, the man appreciates the pardon most because he felt the rope around his neck. You can cherish the cross work of Christ and his pardon towards you most because you feel the curse that you deserve. When you feel the warmth of the flames of hell around your feet ready to engulf you, it's there that you realize Jesus was dropped into hell for me. It's there that you cherish, as the hymn writer says, that old rugged cross. Because you know it's there that he bore your curse. So behold the shameful Savior. Behold the cursed Savior. Now lastly, behold the willing Savior. In verse 23, it says, They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And I posed the question earlier, why in heaven's name would the Roman soldiers give him this kind of narcotic concoction? Because it's obvious they weren't concerned about alleviating his pain. And then, secondly, why would Jesus refuse it? Well, this concoction of myrrh with wine was used much like sedatives are often used today as a kind of chemical restraint. Because oftentimes during crucifixions, people would panic, try to get free, and become an awful mess. But Jesus being offered this, again, not to alleviate pain, but as a sedative to keep him from trying to fight against it, trying to get off of that cross, trying to fight the Roman soldiers. He's saying, you don't need to give me that. I choose to be here. He said earlier on when he was apprehended in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Peter pulled out the sword and chopped off Malchus's ear, he tells Peter, don't you know, Peter, I could call down 12 legions of angels. A legion was 6,000 Roman soldiers. I could call down thousands of angels at my beck and call, and they would slaughter all these Roman soldiers if I wanted them to. But he didn't. He was choosing to die in that manner. He didn't need any chemical restraints. It was his love that would restrain his hands and keep them on the cross. It was his love that would restrain his feet from kicking and keep them on that Roman cross. It was his love for you. He did it for you. Because it's the only way 
that shameful, cursed sinners like us could be accepted before the Almighty. Justice had to be paid for. The shame had to be borne. The curse, the divine judgment had to be absorbed. And it's either absorbed in hell forever on the backs of sinners or it's absorbed upon the cross. Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up. This commandment I receive from my Father. Jesus Jesus willingly Endured this shameful, cursed death. He did it intentionally. You see, we are the shameful ones. We are the cursed ones. But as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's the great substitution. It's what we sung earlier, his robes for mine. In the book of Leviticus, much akin to Adam and Eve and their shameful realization of their nakedness and their skin in the Garden of Eden, God sets up a law when someone has a skin disease. As we said earlier, they are to cry out, unclean, unclean. And they are to be taken outside the camp. But there is a way back into the camp that Moses lays out. In Leviticus 14.2, it says, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now he shall be brought to the priest. And the priest, I love this, the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp. Thus the priest shall look, and if the infection of leprosy has been healed in the leper, then the priest shall give a command to take two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet string and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. And the priest shall also give a command to slaughter the one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water As for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop and he shall dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slaughtered over the running water. Then he shall sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean. Then he shall let the live bird go free 
over the open field. And the one to be cleansed shall then wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, bathe in water, and be clean. Now afterward he may enter the camp, but he shall stay outside the tent for seven days. And it will be on the seventh day that he shall shave off all his hair, and he shall shave his head and his beard and his eyebrows, even all his hair. And he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and be clean. And now on the eighth day, a new week, he shall take two male lambs without blemish and a yearling ewe lamb without blemish and three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering and one log of oil. And the priest who pronounce him clean shall present the man to be cleansed as well as these things before Yahweh at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Say, Matt, why on earth are you reading (laughs) ancient laws concerning skin disease? Because in that ancient law, we have a beautiful picture. We have a beautiful picture of the priest going outside the camp. Him declaring the leper to be clean. We have this ceremony that's reminiscent of Noah in a kind of new creation with the flood and the re-emerging of the earth and the sending out of the dove. And one who has now been washed And at the beginning of the new week, he finally is able to enter into the presence of Yahweh at the tent of meeting. He's accepted. Friends, we have a high priest who went outside the camp to bring us in the camp. The one who took our shame, the one who took our cursing, and he did this willingly to bring us in. May we be eternally grateful to him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we are lepers. We are unclean. We deserve to be outside the camp. But in the wonder of your grace, you've brought us in through the blood of the Lord Jesus We thank you. And I pray for those in this room who've not yet united themselves to this great high priest. May they do so this evening. May they trust in him and him alone. May they respond to his invitation to come unto him all who are weary and heavy laden and he will give rest. Oh, Lord, I pray that they would come. In Jesus' name, amen.